Our reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Follow along as I read. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You may be seated. Morning. How you all doing? That sounds sort of middling to me. (laughs) Maybe okay, maybe not. Definitely middling. (laughs) Good, okay. Well, I've preached this now twice before, and I'm really enthusiastic to preach it again, though I'm a little like, I've preached this twice before. I'm not used to this pace. I've got to get back into the role of things. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 18 through to 29. So I'll be leaning on you to laugh at all my jokes and to weep at the appropriate moments to keep me going. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 to 29 is what we're looking at this week. If you were here last week, we looked at church proper. And this week we're looking, you know, as in the actual church, the gathering and why you should come to church and all that. And this week we're looking at worship. That's a nice, non-controversial theme, isn't it? None of you have strong opinions about worship. But that's what we'll be tackling this morning. So Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. I came up with this phrase about uh, worship in its ideal form. It goes like this. Listen carefully. When we worship God, we are collectively exiting the realm of the individual selfish self and entering the space of God-centered joy. 
or at least that's the theory. In practice, perhaps you find it a bit more like the bulletin blooper that printed the next hymn as, I love thee, my Ford. The third verse of Blessed Assurance will be sung without musical accomplishment. You know these kind of ones. The choir invites any members of the congregation who enjoy sinning to join the choir. Or maybe you resonate with the comedian on YouTube who uh, pokes good-humored fun at church worship by offering jokey training for newbies to different types of hand-raising. Perhaps you've seen it, you know, holding the baby, washing the windows, touchdown. Or perhaps uh, you feel like the person who said that worship services can be a bit like airplane landings. Any worship service you can walk away from is a good worship service. Now, we have a great music team here, and I'm thrilled about what's going on. But if I'm honest, I too sometimes find worship services a bit disappointing. I am especially fed up with worship wars. I think it was Francis Chan who, when preaching to pastors in China, described how in the West, if someone didn't like the music in a service, they would go to a different church, and how the Chinese pastors just thought he was joking. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. Consumeristic Christianity. Have you heard uh, the new name they've given the White Sox Stadium? Guaranteed Rate Field. Sometimes in church circles, worship can feel a bit like that, consumerism. This next hymn is brought to you by Guaranteed Rate Field. And so when we talk about worship, our goal is to forget about the technicalities of worship and actually worship. To actually think about Him. Well, anyway, that's the uh, attempt that I'm going to be trying to do for us. Let's see if we manage it. Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. You'll find it on page 1009 in the Church Bibles, and it's in the worship folder in front of you as well. Follow along as I read it for us one more time. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You have not come to that mountain. You've come to a better mountain. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word at this better mountain, a better word than the blood of Abel. 
And then he concludes from this contrast between these two mountains. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So there's this physical mountain. Now there's this heavenly mountain. There's a voice speaking from the heavenly mountain. We need to listen to it. Then you have this quotation from Haggai that we'll look at in just a moment. At that time, his voice, this is verse 26, shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in all the things that cannot be shaken may remain. We'll look at what that means in a moment. And then he concludes, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence or awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What I think the Bible is teaching us here is that which mountain we have come to will affect what worship we experience. A legalistic mountain will lead to a distant worship experience. A graced mountain will lead to a joyful worship experience. Which mountain we come to shapes what worship we experience. So let's look at these uh, mountain options. Verses 18 to 24 contrast two different kinds of mountain. One mountain you have not come to, verse 18. The other mountain, verse 22, you have come to. The mountain you have not come to is in verses 18 through to 21. This mountain was the original assembly or the ecclesia, that is the Greek word for church that is used of this assembly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament people of God gathered around this Mount Sinai from which they heard God speak his words, the Ten Commandments, verse 19. This mountain was so holy that if an animal touched it, it would have to die. Verse 20, even Moses, that great holy man, was trembling with fear. Verse 21, if you uh, have a tendency towards being a people pleaser, your first question is, will this please the people around me? The fear of God is your friend. And you can first learn to fear God, not people from Mount Sinai, which is the Old Testament model of a worship service. So God had taken his people out of Egypt into the desert to worship him at Mount Sinai. God's people gathered around a mountain from which God spoke his word as they worshiped him. But God's people did not and could not keep that law which God spoke. So the author of Hebrews here emphasizing that to go back to that mountain now, that way of worshiping now, would be to experience nothing but uh, darkness, gloom, storm. Verse 18. And perhaps you have had some worship experiences a bit like that at churches. It's just dark and gloomy. Could be they're still a bit stuck at Mount Sinai. For this is not the mountain we have come to. 
we've come to a different mountain. This is verses 22 to 24. It is Mount Zion, verse 22. Not, this is making clear, a small village in Illinois. Not even the physical hill in Jerusalem. But the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is a spiritual mountain connected to the worship of heaven with uh, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, we're not familiar with that phrase, festal gathering. What on earth does that mean? Well, it, it means it's festivity. It's a festival, like summer fest. It's a joyful celebration. So if you are looking for the ultimate party, the greatest celebration This mountain is really what you're looking for. It's a heavenly festal gathering. For it is, verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. A meaning that God's people are his children, firstborn in the sense that he first chose them and has kept them as his very own, as he adopted them as his firstborn. So at Mount Sinai, no one could even touch the mountain, let alone approach God. But now we have actually come to God, verse 23. We're able to know him personally in relationship. You can know God. Because, verse 24, we have come to Jesus who is the mediator of a new covenant, and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus' blood covers all our sin, even a murder as serious as that of the murder of Abel. Sinners like you and me, murderers in heart, if not in deed, can now through Jesus come to this joyful heavenly, festal, this festivity, this celebration, which is Mount Zion. Uh, I'm going to recommend to you a book uh, this morning by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, He is uh, a brilliant man, and he's written a book called The Whole Christ, and I commend it to you. If you have to read one book this year, read Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ. Well, if you have to read one book this year, read the Bible. But, and you might like to read one of my books. There's a new one coming out in January. But apart from that, <laughs> if you have to read one, seriously, if you have to read one book this year, read this one by Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ. He explains the trap of legalism. Satan, Ferguson writes, has been driving people to the law as a contract, pressing down on our failure to keep its terms, confirming our worst fears about our relationship to God, and blackmailing us into further bondage in our legalism. 
Satan knows he cannot destroy the salvations of God's people, but he is bent, hell-bent, as he was in Eden, on destroying our peace, liberty, and joy in God. So what's the answer? Well, Ferguson quotes from the former slave trader, John Newton. goes like this. Bow down beneath the load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that, sheltered by my side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I don't know what's on your conscience this week. I don't know what areas Satan is pressing into you, accusing you. How dare you go to church? How dare you call yourself a Christian? Jesus' blood. We can say to him, he died and it is gone. Which mountain? Mount Zion. Second, what worship? Now look with me at verses 25-29. This is the, the worship that characterizes Mount Zion. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns uh, from heaven. So the earthly, physical Mount Sinai, now this heavenly assembly, there's a voice speaking, as it were, from heaven. They're still preaching here. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, and all the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, what I think is going on here is as follows. Because we are now at this Mount Zion, because of Christ, we now may worship acceptably. Verse 28. Now, this worship has a couple of characteristics I want you to notice. So, verse 25 do not refuse him who is speaking. So at the heart of Christian worship is God's people listening to the gospel as it is preached from the Bible. He, he's issuing a warning here, as he has done throughout the book of Hebrews, that they not give up on God's speaking through his word. So acceptable worship is then a listening worship. Biblical worship is listening to the Bible preached. You see, this isn't just me giving you information. Did you think that that was what was going on? Did you think I just studied hard and, you know, spent my life in too many libraries to mention and got a doctorate and, wow, he's a bit of a nerd and now he can share us what he knows. 
Did you think this was just about finding out about the Greek word ecclesia and figuring out Mount Sinai and Mount Do you think that, that was it? Oh, no. We are praying as we look at the Bible together that God would come down. That he would speak to the urgent needs of our hearts. And that we would worship. So it is a listening worship. But it is also a graced worship. Look at verse 28. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now what is this kingdom that cannot be shaken? It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, the prophet Haggai predicted the coming of Christ. And when Jesus came, he lived, died, rose again. The Old Testament kingdom, he was saying, would be shaken. That is, it would cease. Now, Christ is here. We are receiving, note the present tense, we are receiving already right now. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is, it will last forever. Now, that has huge application. We are not waiting for another prophet or another Messiah, whether Muhammad or Joseph Smith. Jesus is God's final word and his kingdom cannot be shaken. So we are receiving right now this unshakable kingdom Are you worried about what's going on politically in this country? Whoever is president, (laughs) this kingdom is unshakable. We are receiving this unshakable kingdom. That is the Christ and his kingdom will last forever. Therefore, be grateful. Now, I don't know about you, but this verse 28 has never made any sense to me. So you've got these two mountains, the one that is fearful and the other that is joyful, and the conclusion is be fearful, even though you've come to the mountain that is joyful. I have spent years trying to figure that out. I think I understand. I think. So when it says, therefore, be grateful, I think it should be better translated as, may we have grace? Let us have grace. I've become convinced of this. I went around looking through all the different modern translations and could find no one who agreed with me, so I decided I'd better not share it. You know know the rule of commentaries? Before you preach, you want to at least find one sound commentary that agrees with you, you know? And then I thought to myself, you know, I'd better go back and check a little earlier. So I checked with the King James Version. And it translates this, let us have grace. So I think the point the author of Hebrews is making is the following. Given that Jesus has now come, given that we're now receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's have that grace. Let's receive the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And if we receive God's grace, and grace is not a special ether or substance, it's, it's the loving favor of God towards us, his unmerited kindness to you expressed in Jesus. If we receive the grace 
and love of God and Jesus. Then we worship God acceptably. And you say, what does this mean about reverence? Well, the reverence is still here, isn't it? Acceptably with reverence and awe. Actually, those two words are pretty much synonymous in many ways. It's saying fear and fear. What do you think reverence means? Putting on a suit? Is that reverence? Not wearing flip-flops? A tie? Our God, it says, is a consuming fire. Fear and fear. The idea here is the following. You're on a plane. And you land. And the wing is on fire. And to have reverence and awe at that moment is to run for the exit. That's what it's talking about. Well, that was Mount Sinai. We saw that at Mount Sinai. No one could even dare touch the mountain. Moses was trembling with fear. Mount Sinai. But Mount Zion, this Christian assembly now, has an additional element that transforms the whole experience. Namely, it's a festal gathering. Namely, joy. If you uh, walked into the Oval Office to see the President of the United States, I imagine it would be hard to forget that the person in front of you has the power to call down nuclear holocaust on the globe. He has his finger on the button. But if you walk into the Oval Office to see the President of the United States, and that person who does have the power to call down nuclear holocaust on the globe is also... Your dad? Then it transforms the whole experience. He is still the same person. But your relationship to him is different from that of the guest, much different from that of the enemy. You are his child. And that firstborn child relationship with your heavenly father is unshakable. And therefore, throughout human history and all over the world, the distinctive characteristic of Christian worship is joy. Because we can now approach this great God. The darkness and the doom and the gloom has gone. Such at least is the theory. The practice can be different. A pastor who had recently graduated from a seminary was in his first Baptist leadership meeting. I can tell this story as someone who grew up as an Anglican but once pastored a Baptist church as well for my sins. 
One of the leaders was uh, advocating for a change in the worship based on the fact that he believed the Bible demanded that change. Suddenly another leader jumped to his feet and said, I don't care whether it's in the Bible, it ain't Baptist and we ain't doing it. How easy it is for us to make a rule out of our own personal worship preferences. Find a Bible verse to support our experience or our tradition. And so like the joy of Mount Zion. There was an African church that introduced new musical instruments into their services. Drums and electric guitars. Well, you can imagine. Wow. The missionaries who went to the African church were outraged. They thought the drums were the slippery slope to hell. It was the devil's beat, seductive and salacious. The Africans, though, loved the drums. Finally, the church is including in its worship our traditional musical style. But electric guitars, well, that is the slippery slope to hell. <laughs> yeah, I have heard theological arguments for everything from tambourines to organs, from suits to jeans. In my mid-twenties, I spent much of my life in libraries, I, I confess. I was studying the Puritans, and as some of you know, some Puritans believe that churches should have no musical instrumentation at all in their worship services. Their reasoning almost persuaded me, though it wasn't my preference, I can tell you for sure. After all, the New Testament does nowhere describe Christian worship with musical instruments, and therefore it seemed reasonable to argue that our worship today should have no musical instruments either. But I notice a logical fallacy in their thinking. The Psalms themselves use many musical instruments. We are not sure exactly what some of the words for instruments in the Psalms mean today, but almost certainly there was the ancient version of a guitar, trumpets, drums, clashing cymbals, clapping hands, not to mention ram's horns, which will excite the um, brass players this morning. Do you know that for the Puritans, and we're having the organ this morning, it's wonderful, but did you know for the Puritans, the organ would have been the sign of the return of paganism? The organ, they felt, was used in pagan temples and then adopted into the ancient medieval church. So the Puritans had a very strong theological argument for not using the organ. And as for choir robes, well, they were what medieval monks wore. How outrageous, slippery slope to hell. But then the New England Puritans used to wear white powdered wigs to preach in, so it takes all sorts, I guess. Calvin wore an academic robe, the Geneva gown of fame, which at the time was what professors wore to all their classes. So you went to a class, the professor was wearing a gown. So Calvin preached in a gown as a way of saying, I'm a real intellectual and I know what I'm talking about. The form of clothes was used to reach the people he was called to reach with the content of the gospel. I suppose I could wear my Cambridge doctorate gown, but actually professors there only ever wear gowns on rare occasions, just a few times a year. In classes, in real reality, I don't know, it's tweed jackets with patches on the arms and jeans and really crazy wild professorial hair. It's a bit like John Piper. No, I'm afraid, my dear friends, 
The Bible does not provide us much definitive theological conviction about what to wear to worship or what instruments to use. And by the very absence of direction about these forms, it urges us to focus on what it does talk about and shape our worship around that focal point. God. Jesus. Grace. Let us pray. We pray now, Lord, that you would uh, help us to worship you acceptably with uh, festivity, joy, and awe as our King and as our Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.